the Android operating system has been put on an iPhone. And today's guest is Nick Lee, who accomplished that strange feat. In the past, Nick has put Windows 95 on an Apple Watch as well. Why would you do something like this? But more importantly, how do you do it? In today's interview with Nick, we talk about the technical challenges of bringing Nick's bizarre sense of technological irony into reality with the Android operating system being put on an iPhone. But before we get to this episode, some quick announcements. The Software Engineering Daily community has started working on a project called Software Daily. We are building an open source news and information site about software. And if you're a web developer, whether you're working with React.js or Flux Architecture or Node.js, you might want to check out the Software Daily repo at softwaredaily.com. And if you want to contribute to Software Engineering Daily in a different way, you can also find Find out how to become a host for Software Engineering Daily. You can find links to the Slack channel. You can find links to my Twitter account and my email. And these would be on softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter on softwareengineeringdaily.com, which features the content that the Software Engineering Daily team is checking out on a weekly basis. Nick Lee is the CTO at 10Digi. Nick, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about putting one thing on another. And by that, I mean you put Android on an iPhone and you have also put Windows 95 on an Apple Watch. So I want to talk about these things as well as just the overall ethos of why you do this type of stuff. So let's start with the Android on iPhone. You put Android on an iPhone. Why would you do this? Okay, so um, this is kind of the overarching theme of all the uh, all the YouTube comments I've received, uh, all the hate mail I've gotten, <laughs> um, has pretty much been the kind of the the motif has been why, um, and the main reason is that there, I don't think there's ever been two platforms, at least in my lifetime, that have had such polarized audiences um, <laughs> that uh, with such animosity for each other as Android and iOS. So it just seemed kind of natural to to want to smash them together as hard as possible. <laughs> okay, so it's natural maybe from a ideological standpoint, but does it have any technological uh, usage that that actually would be practical? Uh, I suppose it does. I mean, you know, one of the uh, attributes of Android that that camp always pushes is that it's open and you can do anything with it and you don't have to, you know, there's no app store approval process uh, of the same kind of magnitude that Apple's is. Um, so, you know, the ability to kind of run whatever software you want, the ability to do things like tethering, um, you know, there, there are actual practical applications to having Android available on your iPhone. At a high level, how do you do this? How do you get Android on an iPhone? Okay, so m my initial plan was to try to figure out some way to actually run it uh, on the iPhone's hardware directly. Um, obviously, that would have been you know the, the kind of the most ideal situation because you wouldn't have to deal with a, a big bulky case that needs its own battery and its own electronics. Um, but that ended up being you know just kind of an initial look into beginning to do that would have been really complicated. Um, you know, all of Apple's everything end to end with the iPhone is pretty much closed source um as far as like you know the bootloader the kernel it's all it's all kept very tightly under wraps by Apple 
Um, but I still wanted to make it happen. So the next route I pursued basically was, for all intents and purposes, constructing a headless Android phone that sits in a little case underneath the iPhone um, and just you know has a network connection basically to a host application that runs on the phone. So to clarify, you have the iPhone sitting in this case, and the case within it has a board that is running Android. The Android board is connected via uh, USB to the proprietary Apple cord, mm-hmm. and that's that's plugged into the to the iPhone. And essentially, it's running Android and. It's virtualizing the. I guess it's it's virtualizing the uh, Android experience on the iPhone, and the iPhone is still reading touch events and translating those to Android. Is that accurate? Yeah, and it's reading the video frames back. Uh, it, it's just like you know VNC or you know Microsoft Remote Desktop. It's that principle. Hmm. Okay, so let's assume this is a useful project. Why hasn't somebody done this sooner? Um, That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the first reason is to do something like this, like if you were to actually do it in production and not just like a quick and dirty hack like I did, um, you basically have to become a mobile phone manufacturer. And and that's obviously a non-trivial exercise. Um, and that's the reason we really haven't thought about putting it into production is just because it's it's such a large undertaking to develop a piece of hardware of this complexity. Um, and also, you know, as as far as you know, why more hobbyists haven't done it, um, it required a, a kind of fairly involved um, deconstruction of the Android operating system. Like I wasn't able to use any off-the-shelf Android ROMs. I had to build the operating system from source myself. Um, I had to do a lot of digging into kind of the graphics architecture to be able to grab the frames you know, fast enough that they could be transmitted over USB um, so the iPhone could read them. Like you know, th- There was a, a decent amount of te- technical complexity, which for something that isn't going to go into production would probably turn some people off. You did end up making yourself into an Android manufacturer, essentially, and we should get into that. So the project was made possible by the fact that the entire Android operating system is open source. Why is the fact that Android is open source so important to this project? Uh, yeah, so the that I would call that Android's killer app almost is the fact that it's open source. Um, and what that lets you do is that lets you modify the operating system on its absolute core levels. Um, so you know to to grab kind of the raw video frames that are being displayed on the screen, you have to get pretty close to the metal if you want to do that in some some kind of performant way. And without without being able to modify the operating system's internals, there really wouldn't be any way to do that. Um, similarly, to talk to the iPhone, um, there's actually a great open source project out there called uh, it's called USB Mux D, uh, which I read about in the blog post a little bit. And basically what that does is that uh, that's an open source um, daemon that communicates uh, to the iPhone um, using Apple's proprietary protocols. Uh, and because that's open source and it's, it's used to using Linux USB drivers, it was pretty easy to port to Android. And because the Android operating system is open source, it was easy to include it into my build. So we'll get into some more of the software internals, but... 
talking more about the the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. There's something called the Open Handset Alliance, which maintains the open source Android project. Give me an o- overview of the Android open source ecosystem and what the Open Handset Alliance does. Sure. So I'm I'm not I'm certainly not the most well versed on that topic, but you know my understanding is that. The Open Handset Alliance is basically a uh, a partnership between some open source developers, um, Google, and handset manufacturers, um, and my guess is probably software manufacturers as well. Um, and it's 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 I would call it something of a standards organization where they all agree about you know what they're going to support and what interfaces they're going to deal with, um, and it allows you know Android to be somewhat standardized you know from manufacturer to manufacturer. Obviously, it's not the same level. You know, there's more fragmentation than you'd get with with a company like Apple where they control everything, um, but it, it gets them closer to kind of a homogenous experience. Hmm. Okay, so you tested this project by prototyping on a Nexus 5. Why is an Android device an adequate target to test something that you were trying to build for an Apple device? Um, well, if you really think about it, I, w- I was still building for an Android device. Um, most of the software development that I had to do was actually for the board that sits in the case, which is basically, for all intents and purposes, uh, a headless Android phone. Um, but before I had that board, I started with the Nexus Five um, because it was, you know, it wasn't an abs- the absolute latest model phone. You know, it had specs that are not considered state of the art anymore. Um, so I assumed it would be a kind of a good baseline target um, to develop for. And then once I kind of had a proof of concept that, you know, you could remotely control an Android phone over USB from an iPhone, uh, then I, I moved into making custom hardware. That term headless Android, explain what that means. Okay, I mean, that basically means, you know, most Android phones, you know, they have a motherboard, they have a battery, uh, and then they, they have a, a touchscreen. Um, since the iPhone, in this case, is providing the touchscreen, um, that isn't a necessary part of the hardware. Um, so, obviously, that, you know, that cuts down things like battery consumption. It cuts down you know, drivers you have to write. Um, so, w- what I ended up going with was an Android development board that, that only has video out. It doesn't have a built-in, uh, a built-in touchscreen. And nobody had done this before? Not, not to my knowledge. Um, it's possible that somebody's figured it out somewhere, but n- certainly they haven't leveraged uh, the media in the way I did. <laughs> Aren't there like Android TVs and other kinds of objects that don't really have the same... I guess, I guess even an Android TV, you ha- it's, not really he- it's not headless because you have this, the monitor. Yeah, I mean, the board I used is, is specifically designed to be an Android, like for, it's designed for people who are working on the operating system. Um, so it's, it's kind of Google's reference hardware uh, that you're supposed to target before you start going to individual phones. Hmm. Okay, so there are several components that you had to port for Android, and I want to go through these. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is Libby Mobile Device, which lets you communicate natively with iOS devices. Describe what Libby Mobile Device does and how that fits into this project. Sure. So 
it's it's really uh, lib i mobile device as you know iphone ipod touch ipad oh, yes okay. um and it basically you know in developing the syncing mechanism um for all those devices apple created a bunch of proprietary protocols uh that they use and they all talk over USB pretty much. Um, and and LibI mobile device is basically a series of libraries that that either that emulate those native protocols. Um, and they're and they're open source, so you can port them to whatever you need to run them on. Ah, so so Apple publishes maybe a, a spec or an interface for Apple. Apple doesn't publish any of that. Um, as far as I can tell, the uh, the Libby mobile device uh, developers had to reverse engineer um, most of that from either you know sniffing packets across the wire or or, um, or you know disassembling Apple's binaries and and kind of seeing how those protocols work because Apple doesn't make any of this stuff public. Okay, so are there are there bugs in that in that protocol? Like how 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 well how thoroughly can you reverse engineer something like that? Um, it, it's hard to know for sure, uh, because like I said, Apple hasn't really documented it. So it, it's, it's really hard to tell, but in, in my testing, it's, you know, it's been around for a while, the project they've kept up with, you know, with updates that Apple's made as they introduce new hardware. Um, and it's, it seemed to be pretty reliable to me. This begs the question, is there an entire, um, culture around hacking and decomposing these types of proprietary Apple products there absolutely is um and it's it's to some extent a subset of the uh the iphone jailbreaking community uh there's a lot of overlap between this stuff and um and and those people and the reason why is because you know one of the features of this lib mobile device um series of libraries is that uh it has components that let you browse the file system on ios because there's actually a Apple has an interface that lets you do that. Um, so, you know, things like that are useful to jailbreak developers. So sometimes they, they'll contribute to these projects and vice versa. Okay, so another component of this Android version that you built is USB MuxD. You mentioned mm-hmm. this a little earlier. And this allows you to use a USB cable to effectively communicate between Android and iPhone. Yeah. Um, so... Explain what you had to do to get a TCP connection between Android and iPhone. Sure. So, so USB MuxD, the real USB MuxD, is actually a a daemon that ships with Mac OS X uh, that is used to communicate with Apple's iDevices. Um, and basically what it does is it will... Say you have on your iPhone, there's processes listening to TCP ports, you know, running in the background. One of those processes might be responsible for syncing your your iTunes library. One of them might be responsible for installing applications when you run them from Xcode. Um, another one might be, I don't know, responsible for syncing your calendar. Um, what USB MuxD does is it allows you to turn the USB connection um, between your computer and the iPhone into a basically a multiplexed network connection. So you can communicate directly with those processes, uh, but the interface is kind of all hidden from you. All you know is you're writing to a socket, and it's ending up on the iPhone on the other side. And part of LibI mobile device is actually an open source clone of, uh, of USB MuxD. 
which which does the same thing, but obviously since it's open source uh, and you know designed for Linux-based operating systems, uh, it was it was portable to Android, uh, and that's really what enabled this because you know USB is much faster than pretty much any Wi-Fi, and the latency is much lower as well. Okay, and. In order to get the the actual iPhone screen to display the contents of Android, which are being sent to it over TCP, you wrote a daemon called a screen streamer. What does screen streamer do? So that process uh, sits on the Android side, uh, and pretty much what that does is it um, it connects to an Android API uh, on the operating system level called Surface Flinger. Uh, and and what it does is it reads uh, full video frames off of uh, out of Surface Flinger, and it sends them out over um, over the USB cable to the iPhone. Uh, it doesn't do any compression or anything like that. Um, it didn't it didn't seem to be necessary uh, at the resolutions I was running at. Um, you know the USB is 480 megabits per second, which was more than enough to get uh, to get those video frames over. Uh, what ScreenStreamer also does is it uh, reads in over that over that USB connection uh, touch events, and it emulates them. And my impression is that the screen. I mean, I guess I could have looked this up beforehand, but the screen size is not identical on the iPhone and the Nexus. Is that accurate? Uh, actually, on the Nexus, it is. Um, at least for the iPhone uh, six plus, which I have. Um, I believe they both have native resolutions of 1920 by 1080. Oh, um, so there were no translation issues there. When I was using the the Nexus, no. However, when I started using the Dev Board, um, I believe there's a there's a known issue with its um, with s- something in the bootloader um, or something in the video hardware. I don't remember uh, that prevents it from running at that resolution. So it's actually running, I think, at 800 by 600, which is why you see the letterboxing in the video. Letterboxing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see the uh, there's there's black lines on both the top and the bottom of the uh, the screen if you look at the video that that was oh. on YouTube and everywhere. Okay, so how responsive are the touch events when you have Android up and running on the iPhone and you touch something like? Is there noticeable latency relative to how it is on you know iPhone running iPhone? It's not too bad. It's about. I'd say we get about 15 to 20 frames per second. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's totally usable. It's not as fast, obviously, as an Android phone would be you know, if you were just using a normal Android phone. But uh, it's pretty good. Okay, so once you got the iPhone displaying and communicating with the Android Nexus 5, what did you do next? After that, you know, once I had a proof of concept that... You know, demonstrated that this could be done, that I could control an Android phone or something running Android from iOS. Um, the, ne- the next step was to build, build custom hardware that could fit into a case on the back of the phone. Um, and that's when I started researching different boards that could run Android. Uh, and that's when I came across the, uh, the board I ended up using, which is called the HiKey. Um, and that's from a company called LeeMaker. And like I was telling you before, that's the official as far as I can tell, the official reference board uh, that Google suggests uh, when developing the Android operating system. Okay, so you wanted to, uh, you know, 
get this iPhone compatible with an Android board. What were some of the challenges that you encountered trying to extrapolate from the prototype version of the Android Nexus 5 uh, um, doing this versus the Android board? Mm, Let me think. Um, There were some... uh, Honestly, by the time I made it to the... uh, by the time I made it to the reference board, I had had most of the uh, most of the challenging aspects of it worked out. Um, the The biggest one, I think, there's it was a while ago now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can edit this out too. Sure, no, totally. <laughs> I mean, I could just skip to the next question. So, I mean, sure. you you wanted so you got the you got the Android board uh, running and poked into the iPhone. And it was actually running. You actually had Android running on an iPhone. So you wanted to build an enclosure to house the Android board and actually make this sort of a usable device rather than a board and an iPhone that you would both have to carry around. So how did you build the enclosure for that Android board? Sure. So before I got into kind of the world of 3D printing, I wanted to see if there was a way to have it manufactured for me. Uh, because at that time I knew nothing about 3D printing or CAD or 3D design or anything. And the more I looked into it, the more I discovered that it, it's to get something like that produced, you know, just for low volume, meaning one or two of them, it was really kind of prohibitively expensive for just a, you know, a quick hacky project like this. Um, and as a result, that kind of forced me into the world of 3D printing. So, you know, one day I decided I, I went to B&H here in Manhattan. I picked up the one of the cheapest 3D printers they had. Um, I set up Google SketchUp. And, you know, a couple days later, after, you know, taking some measurements and, and learning how to use SketchUp, which is a CAD-ish program, uh, I, I was, you know, I was printing prototype enclosures, and I, I just started playing with the measurements until I could got it as small as I could. So, once you had this enclosure built, you had an iPhone running Android, and this was sitting in a big bulky case. You had accomplished your goal. Did you start using it as your default phone? Did you start testing it and like walking around with it and seeing if it would function like you needed it to? Yeah, uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I still carry it around from time to time. Uh, actually, what was a lot of fun, uh, it was I, I, the story broke right before uh, WWDC, which is Apple's kind of annual international developers conference that they hold in San Francisco. Um, and the fun part was that you know it had been all over the media for the couple days prior to WWDC, so I was walking around with it there. Um, and you know everybody knew what it was, and it was you know I met some cool people, and it was it was fun to to talk to people about it. But um, but yeah, I, you know I carry it around sometimes. Uh, I, honestly, it, it <laughs> I didn't really build this because I needed to have it. I built it because I wanted to see if it was possible. So you know, it's not like there was some some need I had that, that required me to carry it. Well, this project was certainly atypical for a mobile developer uh, given that you engaged with both android and iphone on this project and you really got to taste the internals of these operating systems up close how do you feel that the two platforms differ as a developer i mean you mentioned for example 
uh, the fact that this one protocol had to be reverse engineered in order to actually make it usable. Um, and you also mentioned that Android, you know, the, the killer feature is that the, the code is open source. Is the killer feature of iPhone that the, the code is not open source? Is that somehow a, an equivalent asset to the platform? I would say yes. Um, I think on on the iPhone, kind of the advantage is that it's a closed ecosystem, and Apple controls it end to end. And as a result, you know they're able to. And there's a very small selection of hardware that it runs on, and and as a result, they're able to ensure a, a relatively consistent experience for pretty much everybody. Obviously, the downside is you can't do much customization, uh, and the converse is is true on, on Android. You know, you can you can customize it all you want, and you can you can use it for all sorts of applications it was never intended for. Uh, you, you could build a point-of-sale system on Android, as people have. With uh, There's one called Clover. Um, you could build an industrial automation system that runs Android. Uh, you, know, you can't do any of these things with iOS because it's, it's, it's not open. But obviously the downside is that you know, there's more, when things go wrong, there's more maintenance that you have to do, and the odds that your problem case is the same as somebody else's are lower since there's a greater possibility for deviation from the norm. So you are talking about the consistent experience among iOS devices. My impression is that the experience is actually not that consistent. You have you have a consistent experience among all of the high end highest end Apple devices at a given time, but over time that consistency degrades and my experience with the Android, the high-end Android devices, is that it's that's essentially the same. Is that if you have the highest-end Nexus device, um, you're going to have a top-quality experience, despite the fact that uh, it is an open an open ecosystem. And if if you have an older iPhone, you're going to have a degraded experience. If you have an older Nexus device, you're going to have a degraded experience. Can you g- give me give me a little more of your of your impression of what you mean by this consistency of experience? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I, I think one one kind of factor that that impacts things on the Android side, though, is that if you look at the the overall Android user base, uh, and I haven't looked at these statistics in a while, so please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but a much smaller percentage of users uh, are running these latest phones, uh, and there's so many other phones to support compared to you know when. When Apple releases a new phone, there's there's one new phone that's the flagship one that has features you can take advantage of. Uh, on Android, you know, there's maybe 15 different manufacturers all releasing top of the line phones, all with different specs, all with different hardware features. So it, it's harder to get that same consistency. Uh, what you said is true, though. Obviously, you know, as as Apple releases new phones with new features, you know, software. Old features become deprecated. Software doesn't support old phones. Software requires features that are new phones. So yeah, you still get that. But I, I think overall, it ends up being more consistent. And also, I think Apple users, if you, if you look at the numbers, Apple users are a little bit better about upgrading to the latest, um, both hardware and software. Hmm. Huh. So it sounds like you're saying that the cultural the cultural aspects of the iPhone community are driven by that closed ecosystem. Um, and so whether, whether or not this is a, a fundamental um, technological um, 
causation, causa- uh, causal relationship on the Apple side, the end result is that more Apple users end up with a high-quality experience. Whether or not whether they've been strong-armed into buying the latest Apple devices uh, or, or not is a different question, um, but more Apple users end up with a high-quality, consistent experience. Yeah, I think that's the net effect of the uh, of the way the ecosystem works. Mm. Um, and as as you know, as someone who's developed relatively extensively for both platforms and ships software for uh, you know a lot of clients that have bonded experiences on both platforms, um, it, you know it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do it on iOS uh, because of the fragmentation. Okay. So you actually have a history of putting strange operating systems on Apple hardware. Back in April, you put Windows 95 on an Apple Watch. So, uh, you know, I would ask you the same question I asked about Android on iPhone. Why would you do that? <laughs> um, yeah, that honestly, that, even, that made even less sense. <laughs> um, that was really, um, I, you know, I had just, I had been doing some research into reverse engineering the way uh, the watch operating system works. Um, and there's actually an excellent blog post by uh, the esteemed uh, iOS developer, Stephen Troughton-Smith, where he did some poking around as well. And I, I don't know how much you know about uh, watchOS and Apple's WatchKit SDK, but you're extremely limited um, with what you can do with it. And what I mean by that is things that you'd find trivial on most other platforms, like building a custom user interface control or you know, getting the location of the user's finger, uh, you can't do out of the box with WatchKit. Apple pretty much gives you their controls, and they, that's what you can use. <laughs> um, so basically the, uh, kind of the kernel of inspiration that, that got me to you know, porting an emulator to the watch was the discovery that you can actually modify the, uh, the applications Xcode generates for the watch um, before installing them and actually inject your own user interface. Uh, and once I discovered that, that uh, that got me really excited, and I wanted to see what outrageous thing I could do with it. <laughs> and it was indeed outrageous um, having Windows ninety five on Apple Watch. So you just basically wanted to test some sort of new, inter- some sort of different interface on there. You decided to throw up Windows ninety five. Um, I mean, Windows ninety five is such an interesting choice because it's. I I have such a sense of nostalgia about Windows ninety five, as do I. Um, you know, Windows ninety five came out two years after I was born, and it was the first operating system I ever used. Um, so yeah, I, I I agree with you. You know, I remember when my family we got our Gateway two thousand. It showed up in a big you know cow colored box. <laughs> um, you know, we set it up, and I saw you know when I was probably five years old, I saw the Windows 95 logo on a screen. So yeah, it has a, it has a personal nostalgic significance to me as well. Yeah, and before the show, you know, we were talking a little bit, and you mentioned something called a Hit Clips player, which was yeah. <laughs> this is another nostalgic piece of technology. If anybody doesn't know what Hit Clips are, you should look them up. It's pretty hilarious. But um, there are all these technologies of the 90s, maybe even early, early 2000s that are so funny to look at in retrospect because they just make no sense anymore. You're totally right. Do you remember the QCAT from Radio Shack? 
No, I don't. What's that? Well, man, that was a uh, a cat shaped barcode reader that plugged into between your keyboard and your uh, and the PS2 port on your computer. And the idea was that like every catalog, every food product would have this like special barcode on it that you could read with this thing. And like Radio Shack would give them out for free. I must have fifty of them uh, at my parents' house. Like it's crazy. These these technologies that we're nostalgic about, I, and I feel like there's also an internet subculture around these. You know, at pro- probably at least as large as the internet subculture around. Um, around reverse engineering proprietary iPhone protocols. Um, it's pretty funny to, I think there's lots of like Tumblr blogs about these things. Uh, they're pretty, yeah, there absolutely are. <laughs> How does the hardware on an Apple watch compare to that of a desktop computer in the nineties when windows 95 was prominent as an actual usable operating system? Uh, well, it's if you were to look at kind of the raw numbers, it, it, it's quite favorable. Um, as, as far as RAM goes, the Apple Watch has uh, 512 megabytes of RAM uh, on board, which is the size of some hard drives <laughs> in the 90s. Um, it also has eight gigs of storage, which is you know, which w- would have been very expensive uh, in a desktop computer at the time. Um, also, the, uh, the the processor, I think, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think it's around somewhere in the 500 megahertz range, which, you know, when 95 came out was, I, I'm not even, I don't think servers were even that fast. Um, I remember, you know, back to my parents' Gateway 2000 that they bought, that was 300 megahertz. I think it had 256 megs of RAM and a 10 gig hard drive, and that was a $3,500 computer. <laughs> so... You know, if you were to look at the raw specs, the Apple Watch is, which is you know, thirty-eight millimeters sitting on your wrist, is is way more powerful than even the flagship desktop computers of the time. Amazing. So we don't need to walk through the Windows ninety-five on Apple Watch technical details in as much depth as we did with Android on iPhone, but at a high level. What were the steps that you took to run Windows 95 on the watch OS? So there was really just one, but it was a big step. Um, and that was taking the uh, box, spelled B-O-C-H-S, um, x86 computer emulator, um, which is open source, uh, and, and porting it to watch OS. Um, and there wasn't really that much involved there because it, somebody had already ported it to the iPhone. Um, so it was really just a matter of taking the iOS port and massaging it a little bit so it would run on the watch. Hmm. Um, okay, so you emulated Windows 95. I read the blog post, and emulation is different than virtualization. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, I mean, in layman's terms, you know, virtualization, usually you're dealing with the same processor architecture of the virtualized operating system as well as the host hardware. So say you have a new Mac and you want to run Windows in VMware or Parallels, because both of those, you know, target Intel processors, both OS X and and Windows, um, and the computer is an Intel processor as well, um, 
you know, you, you, there's no translation that needs to happen. Uh, the instructions that Windows is expecting can be run, you know, directly on the, the host computer's processor. Uh, emulation, on the other hand, uh, as is the case with the Apple Watch, uh, the Apple Watch has an ARM processor, uh, which is which has a totally different instruction set than uh, than Windows computers or, or IBM compatible computers of the 90s had. Uh, so what has to happen with emulation is that software has to actually translate the instructions that the that Windows is expecting uh, into the instructions that the watch's processor is expecting, and it also has to has to translate the other way as well once it gets the results back. Uh, and obviously that. Because that's done in software, that uh, that introduces a lot of uh, a lot of CPU overhead and a lot of latency into the mix. Hmm. Okay, so before you did the Windows ninety five on Apple Watch project, you also did a project where you got an older version of Mac OS running on the watch. Uh, Mac OS is an operating system that ran on Apple computers in the nineties. How did the engineering of Windows ninety five on the watch compare to Mac OS on the watch? Um, it was it was a lot more difficult, um, <laughs> mainly because I think Mac OS was difficult. Was more difficult. No, Windows ninety five was more difficult. Okay, um, and I think because as funny as it is to say, um, Windows ninety five actually requires a much more powerful system uh, than uh, OS ten at or not OS ten. Uh, I believe it was OS seven point five uh, did at the time. Um, so you know, getting it to Testing it was a much more drawn-out process since it required more power, and therefore the emulation was slower. It took longer to boot. Oh, my God, that's right. I remember reading that in the blog post where you were booting it up, and it just took like an hour to... Yeah, and I figured out the reason why, actually, this year at WWDC. Because if you were just doing... Uh, if, you, if you were doing the math, and even if you worked out you know, what the kind of CPU instruction translations added... It, it, in theory, it shouldn't it shouldn't take anywhere near that long. Um, you know, people people actually posted responses on YouTube to my video um, where they they found ARM based you know Chromebooks and things that had similar uh, specs to the Apple Watch and showed Windows ninety five booting in a couple of minutes. Um, and they were like, Nick is wrong. You know, he must have done something wrong. Um, and I eventually discovered that the reason it's so slow is because um, Apple, in an effort to conserve battery life on the watch, actually throttles uh, the amount of CPU your each individual process can use. Uh, and that's why it takes an hour. Wow. Huh. So when you mention WWDC, it makes me wonder, what is the response from the Apple people when you talk to them about this? Uh, they, 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 I think they've been told not to have a response. So, um, Apple and I have a kind of a, a long story history um, of mutual reflexive aggression, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think they, you know, they find it clever and they find it trolly, um, and they otherwise choose not to acknowledge it. But um, I, you know, I've gotten word from from several Apple employees. Uh, you know, on both sides of the spectrum, either you know, either it's you know, you're horrible. Why have you done such an awful thing? And this is really cool. It made me think. <laughs> you're horrible. Why have you done such a thing? So there really are these fanatical Apple purists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, that's almost a direct quote. Like they they exist. 
and and vice versa, like for the Android thing as well. Like, you know, there were people who were like, "Why would you run such a great OS on such terrible hardware?" And you know, I any publicity is good publicity, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> how how big is the contingent of of um, fanatic? I, I mean, I, maybe we don't even need to go into the the ideologue uh, discussion, <laughs> but um, hmm. Okay, so so so, in the, so we kind of discussed Android versus iOS in the paradigm of the phone. What about on in the paradigm of the watch? You're talking about you know Android Wear uh, versus Watch OS. Yeah, like in terms of both developer ergonomics and end user consumability. So I haven't spent uh, I haven't spent too much time with Android Wear. Um, I would like to. Because as far as I as far as I'm aware, I've looked at the developer documentation a little bit, uh, and it looks like you have a lot more options uh, as far as the things you can develop for uh, for it. Um, you know, they give you I think a lot more access to the hardware. Um, they give you access to things like Wi-Fi, which on on the Apple Watch you don't really get in a transparent way. Uh, that you know, they give you access to like mic- the microphone directly, the speaker directly, uh, which Apple is starting to do, but. I, I think in terms of creating kind of rich experiences that are more than just heads up informational, I think Android Wear gives you a lot more opportunities there. So, my my impression is that the the Apple, despite despite that fact, the the Apple Watch has much more adoption than any of the uh, any of the Android watches. Have you seen any numbers? Do you know about adoption? I, I really haven't, uh, unfortunately. I just never uh, see I, anybody with an Android. Uh, once watch. in a while, and they're always like they're always like the IT guy with the calculator watch. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> um, right. yeah, you know, I, I actually I was shocked the other day. I was in a I was in New Jersey, and I was at a kind of a random deli somewhere uh, by the Tappan Zee Bridge, and I saw somebody walk in with an, uh, a seventeen thousand dollar Apple Watch edition. Uh, and that was shocking to me. <laughs> the gold one. The gold one, yeah. Wow. Hmm. New Jersey person who probably commutes to an investment banking job in New York or something. I don't know. Almost almost certainly. <laughs> almost certainly. So how do you teach yourself to reverse engineer this type of stuff? Like, I consider myself a software engineer. I w- would have nowhere no idea where to begin i mean like there's no this this is not like a react js uh type of thing where i could just read a tutorial and figure out how to do this how do you maybe this has something to do with your upbringing or why are you a reverse engineer like this uh that's a good question um i I think it's it's certainly an aspect of my personality (laughs) um for better or for worse (laughs) but um I don't know. I, I, I enjoy taking things that are, are very nicely to get put together and polished and often somewhat closed and, and finding ways of either making them worse or making them impractical or somehow taking them apart. Um, and, you know, Apple's products are, are such a great candidate for that because so many people have them, so many people know what they are. You know, if you write a headline that you know, p- talks about doing something with an Apple product, everyone's going to pick it up because everyone's interested. Uh, so, I mean, that's pretty much the motivation behind it is that it's, it's, it's something a lot of people find interesting. Um, as far as actually doing it goes, 
it's it's really just a matter of uh, you know looking at what you got, you know, looking at what Apple gives you, whether it's a it's a binary that you made in Xcode that you want to see how it's been assembled and what it you know what it links to and what you can re- you know have it linked to instead. Um, or whatever, you know, it, it's just a matter of kind of analyzing what you have, seeing what you recognize in what you have, uh, and kind of following things from there. The pendulum has swung between open and closed ecosystems over time, um, and this is iconic in the Apple versus Android debate. But the time horizon of when we've however long we've had this closed versus open ecosystem debate is not even that long. It's like maybe 20 or 30 years. Um, So it's not necessarily an immutable trend. Do you think that this is going to continue for time immemorium, like closed versus open, or are we going to eventually have entirely open, like just much more open uh, predominance? I'm sorry, you, you, Jeff. You cut out a little bit in the middle of that question. Can oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Well, I, I was saying, so, so the closed versus open pendulum has swung back and forth for the longest time, but we haven't even had computers for an extremely long time. So, do you think that the closed versus open paradigm is going to continue to shift back and forth, or are we going to eventually settle on having one or the other? We're going to have more openness or or more closeness. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know how uh, how closely you followed. I, I think Apple is probably the best example of kind of mainstream proprietary closed uh, stuff. You know, platforms for consumers. Uh, obviously, Microsoft has a long history of that as well. But a lot of their stuff is in the enterprise. Um, I think if you, I don't know how closely you followed WWC this year, but it seems like things are moving in the direction. Even proprietary products are moving in the direction of being more open. Um, you certainly, you, if you look at what they're doing with with apps that never had any extension points before, you know, Apple's opening up the Messages app. They're opening up notifications. They're they're opening up even their development environment on OS X uh, with the ability to write extensions for that. Um, so, I mean, it depends. How, it depends how you def- define open. You know, if, if you define open as as open source, uh, you know, I think as long as as long as people are creating software, we're not going to, you know, some of it's going to be closed source and proprietary, and that's fine. Um, but I think there is an overall trend in allowing people to to customize things for their applications, um, regardless of, of, you know, whether or not the source code is actually available. Well, what's funny about the Apple ecosystem is App- I feel like Apple could open source so much more of this, and it would not injure their bottom line at all because the bottom line is not really about the ecosystem being closed it's about the ecosystem being really really well supported and really well invested and really well thought about um and if if they don't open it up more then the you know the one thing i think about is like the whole machine learning stuff like i remember reading a while ago like no there are no machine learning researchers that want to go work at apple because they can't publish anything they can't really interact with anybody in the outside community and the machine learning community is moving so fast and it's such a big uh kind of holistically intertwined a community that that should reach beyond the borders of a particular company, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a maybe that's a couple of different conversations. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's 
hard to say. Okay, this is not yeah. a, this is not a prognostication uh, TechCrunch style podcast. Um, <laughs> so let, let's let's talk a little more about what you are doing. So what is Ten Digi? Day to day, we are we are a mobile design and development studio. So we build for our clients typically native mobile applications. Uh, though we also do a fair amount of web development uh, and a fair amount of hardware prototyping. Um, and we work with all sorts of different kinds of clients. Uh, you know, our smallest client is one guy in his apartment in San Francisco. Uh, our largest client is Viacom. So, you know, all, sh- all projects of all shapes and sizes, clients of all, sh- all shapes and sizes, uh, and challenges of all shapes and sizes. My understanding is that the hardware prototyping landscape is getting really, really, really easy and really democratized. Is that true? Yeah, uh, certainly a lot more than it was a few years ago. Um, you know, for simple hardware, you have all sorts of open, open products that you can use, like Arduinos, um, that let you prototype all sorts of kind of basic electronics. Um, and if you want to get more involved with, than that, there's there's a lot of more there's a lot of more powerful boards out there that let you prototype all sorts of stuff. Uh, Intel's got a few of them. Uh, the one I use for the Android projects, one of them. Uh, there's obviously Raspberry Pis. You know, hardware prototyping is is really moving fast. When you're talking about prototyping, is that so? Like. How, what would be the model for going from a prototype to something that would be mass produced? Could you just send the prototype to somebody in Shenzhen and say, "Hey, make a million of these"? Um, <laughs> having consulted a couple clients on that process, uh, it's never that easy. <laughs> um, it's usually there's a, a fair amount of work that needs to happen between, you know, a prototype you built with some off-the-shelf microcontrollers and something that can be mass-produced. Um, but it's you know compared to how it used to be, where you actually needed to get the manufacturer to do the prototype for you as well. You know, it's a lot easier to get started in the process. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I guess last question: How does the the type of work that you do on the side, like throwing Windows 95 on an Apple Watch or Android on, on iOS, how does that dovetail with your work at 10Digi? Does it help you think more creatively or or is it just totally unrelated? Um, it's, it's more related than you'd think it would be. Um, it certainly, it kind of fosters, uh, an internal culture, uh, of, of hacking, of exploring new technologies, of pushing the boundaries, um, you know, a culture, basically a culture of R and D, uh, internally. Um, and, you know, whenever we, we do one of these, these projects, which we're trying to do, you know, once a month or so, um, obviously, you know, getting it all over the news gets a lot of eyeballs on the brand um, and gets a lot of interesting people calling us who might not have known about us otherwise. Very cool. Okay, well, Nick, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview. I really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.